All right, welcome to week two of Rediscovering Christmas, our Advent uh, series. And uh, just for fun, I asked a few friends this week if you could describe 2020 with one word or maybe one or two words, what would you say? I wonder how, how would you answer that question? Don't answer out loud, but here's the answers I got from my friends. One person said, overwhelming. Got another answer, unprecedented. Probably the word of the year. Disastrous. Frustrating, unpredictable, challenging, emotionally exhausting, and maybe uh, the hardest answer I got was divisive and hostile. 2020, what would you say? How would you answer that question? Well, uh, what was strikingly absent from my friend's answers was the word peace. Uh, as I was preparing for this message, I just went to Google and typed in the word peace to see how many hits I would get, and I found 273 million pages dedicated to the uh, concept of peace. As I glanced over the results, there were articles from the Peace Corps, Peace Prizes, uh, articles from uh, peace endowments at colleges, uh, peace gardens, peace institutes, peaceful protests. I found women for peace, Jews for peace, Buddhists for peace, religions for peace, musicals for peace, children for peace, on and on and on. 273 million uh, websites with articles dedicated to peace. Uh, if you examine those pages, uh, though, you discover an, an amazing assortment of formulas for for peace. Uh, some of those formulas were noble and inspirational, but if I was honest with you today, I would say many of them seemed very superficial and simplistic. Uh, nearly all of them were based on human efforts uh, to resolve conflict and get along with others. Although some of those efforts encouraged a temporary peace, few of them could report any genuine, lasting uh, results. Uh, nearly all of them, I think, failed to uh, address the ultimate reason why there is so little peace in this world. Well, fortunately, we don't have to sort through 273 million pages on the internet to find the path toward peace. Through Holy Scripture, God has graciously and repeatedly described the only path toward genuine, lasting peace. If you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, that's where we will be this morning. As we see in this passage, uh, three different aspects of peace, uh, all rooted in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see uh, peace with God, uh, meaning, is there a lack of peace with God, and why would that be? And then secondly, we'll see a peace within. Is it possible that we could have peace within in a year like this, in 2020? And then thirdly, we will see peace with others. In our society of polarization, how in the world are we supposed to find peace uh, with others? Well, when we think about peace, as it relates to the Christmas story, we can't help but to remember the story of the shepherds and the angels. I think this passage leads us into several insights about our own intersection with God's peace. And we're going to see these three aspects here on the screen and how they are uh, related to one another and also build on one another this morning. So that's where we're headed. Uh, it's a tall order, so let's pray for God's help. Would you pray with me today? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Uh, even in the midst of December 2020, we come to you uh, with worshipful hearts. Even when we find ourselves in, in the darkness, we know you are here Prince of Peace, we ask that you'd be with us today. May you also be our peace tomorrow and this week and beyond. Guard our hearts, fill our spirits with a, with a shalom, uh, ruling as the Prince of Peace inside of us. As we attempt to extend that peace toward those that we know, uh, would you empower us and give us words of wisdom? Teach us how to learn from your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we're going to tell the Christmas story. It's possible sometimes to go through December and never hear the Christmas story. That would be a tragedy. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look at the Christmas story. It starts like this in uh, verse 1. It says, In those days, uh, Caesar Augustus 
issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. This is pretty amazing to me. I know you've heard this story before, but Caesar Augustus is the most powerful person in the entire world. Uh, He was the Roman Empire whose empire extended all the way from England to India. They had conquered the world with what they called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Uh, It was a peace through strength, peace through force. As my friend Ed Williams used to say, it's easy to have peace when all your enemies are dead. This was Caesar Augustus's modus operandi. He had a great amount of jurisdiction and power. But nonetheless, here's the most powerful ruler in the world at that time who gets mentioned in the birth story of Jesus, not because of his great accomplishments or because of everything that he did for the Pax Romana, but he's just really a footnote in the story of the birth of our Savior, which really leads us to a good reminder this morning, I think. Friends, just as the mighty Roman Empire would soon disintegrate and fade away, That is the way it's going to be when it comes to the politics and governments of men. Let me just say, it doesn't matter who the next administration is, we'll find out soon, but the Scriptures tell us that we are to honor those in authority and we are called to pray for them. In 1 Peter 2, it says, fear God, love the brotherhood, and honor the king. And so we will pray for the next administration, whoever that is. We'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we will also give to God what is God's. And ultimately, we will look to him to bring peace in this world. The kind of peace human governments can bring are extremely limited, and the reason is because human government does not have the power to change the human heart. Let's go on to the next part of our passage. It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news uh, that will come and cause great joy for all of the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Such an amazing story. We hear it all the time. But just imagine suddenly, here we are in the dark of an ordinary night in Bethlehem, and an angel appears in the sky, lights up the sky, and then that angel is joined by a, a sky full of angels. It says, suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Can you just imagine how magnificent, how beautiful, how glorious this sight must have been? Here we have what the New Living Translation calls the armies of heaven who have come to make this announcement. Can you just imagine the sound? These incredible creatures praising God, declaring glory to God in the highest heaven, and what else? Peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. On whom does his favor rest? What does this mean? Remember that. We'll come back to it. It goes on to say this, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. Then it says, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told, what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The story concludes by saying, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The word of the Lord. A familiar story, Luke chapter 2. You've probably heard it before if you've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? What is the news that they are bringing? Uh, The news is today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you who is Messiah or Christ the Lord. The shepherds begin, did you notice, immediately spreading this message far and wide to all of those that they come in contact with. In fact, let me put a word on the screen. Evangelical. This term means someone who is a herald of or a bearer of good news. We could say, in a sense, maybe that the shepherds were the very first New Testament evangelicals. Why did he choose shepherds for this task? I mean, if you were invited to the PR meeting in heaven somewhere where the marketing team was gathering and discussing how are we going to roll out the Savior coming into the world campaign, what kind of uh, you know, strategy would you recommend? You'd probably want to hit this on every cable news outlet. You, you need a good website. You have, a, have a, a team of email marketers, social media. You probably want a good ground game out there, knocking on doors for your person, holding town halls. You'd want thousands and thousands of volunteers on your, on your team. You're looking for every venue, every photo op that you could find to get the word out about this good news, not to mention a few hundred million dollars in TV advertising funds. But here in the Bible, tucked away in a far corner of the Roman world, not in a big city, not in a castle. No, when God sends his own son into this world, he comes in a stable in a little town called Bethlehem. What do we learn about God from this story? You know, my mother used to tell us growing up, actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. Your mom tell you that? What do we learn about God here by his actions? I submit to you what we learn about God by his actions here is that we serve a God who is humble. And if we serve a God who is humble, how come we don't hear more about that when we talk about God? One of my seminary professors said, probably the reason why we don't hear more about the characteristic of humility with God is because of the implications it would have on our lives. Our God is humble. The message that is brought here is peace on earth from God himself, which is the first kind of peace this morning, isn't it? Peace with God. I'll put that on the screen for you. You see, this is called in the Scriptures the doctrine of reconciliation. It's a movement in a relationship from hostility to harmony, reconciling peace with God. Now, you say that in today's modern culture, and it's immediately offensive and regressive, and people think, how could you dare even presume that there could be a problem between me and God, between us and God? I mean, that is just so, so offensive. But, but to that listener, I, I like to explain it this way. Just imagine yourself as a parent. Some of you are parents, so this won't be very difficult. But if, if, if you're a parent, if you're like me, the fastest and most efficient way Uh, for us to lose peace with one another is for you to be mean to one of my kids, okay? So just, you know, that's just the, if you really want to annoy me, if you want to get under my skin, if you want to like rub me the wrong way, go ahead and do something mean or nasty to one of my kids. Immediately you and I, we're not going to have peace with one another after that, right? There's no point in you pretending to be nice with, with, to me if you're, you know, acting in in an inappropriate or angry or mean way to one of my children. 
God is our heavenly Father, and as he looks down from heaven, suppose that he looks down and sees all of the polarization, all of the bitterness, all of the anger, all of the uh, racism, all of the trafficking, all of the exploitation that exists on his planet that he created, all of the wars uh, that exist between people that are made in his very image, and all the other ways in which sin is infecting his world, which he created to be very, very good, should he really be okay with all of this? And what about so many people uh, that he created, he gave them life and breath and so many good gifts that have rejected him to the point where they won't even acknowledge his existence? See, the Bible says there's a problem, that, that, that we have this quarrel with our maker, that, you know, Isaiah 59 says, your sins have separated you and me. And this is where I think the good news gets really, really good. The good news of Christmas is that our God, even though we've done that, even though we've sinned against him, is a very gracious and very merciful and very loving God who actually pursues those who have rejected him. That's just an amazing concept about the Christian religion. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his own love for us in this Christ died for, for us. This is the message, I think, from the shepherds. Why shepherds? Well, maybe it's because the shepherds tie several key biblical themes together, right? Like first, do you remember that the Passover lamb was the sacrifice an ancient Jew would make during their most important holiday of the year? Its blood was the atonement for the person's sins, the cost that had to be paid to reconcile someone back to God. And each time it was done, this sacrifice was a reminder of the original Passover and God's rescue and redemption and the exodus of his people from slavery in Egypt. And so today we look back and we see the significance of that, right? It was at the cross that Jesus shed his blood to pay for our sins, purchase our peace, and reconcile us to God, right? John the Baptist said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So these characters remind us of that type and anti-type relationship between the Lamb of God and the fulfillment in Christ. But the second thing we learn about the shepherds is the shepherds were kind of like the everyman. They were like the ordinary person, the average Joe, the night shift working animal tenders who are unlikely, unexpected recipients of this message of God's favor. It's another scene in how God perfectly flips the script on what we human beings would expect to happen in his plan to unfold peace upon this world. These guys were nothing special. They had no sense of entitlement, no arrogance, no, no, no religious boasting. Did any young person want to grow up and become a shepherd? I mean, this was a really messy, really dirty, really kind of smelly, smelly, not glamorous job at all. And as such, I think they fit right into the process here of introducing God's Messiah as a humble carpenter to a peasant girl uh, to be one of the parents of the Son of God and to give birth to him in this lowly stable surrounded by animals, rough and rugged shepherds out in the fields on the edge of a more refined civilization. The shepherds were the have-nots. They're an example of God raising up and using the humble and turning the world as we know it on its head. Those considered by society to be the most holy, the most righteous, they were not given a place here at the stable to kneel before the Lord of glory. So the shepherds, I think, are symbolic of humanity in our weakness and in our, in our neediness. In other words, we're all shepherds. 
We're all outsiders, unworthy, sinful men and women in need of God's mercy and grace. Brothers and sisters, if you are here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to give you peace with God, I would encourage you to do so today. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first kind of peace I think our Lord Jesus brought us at Christmas, peace with God. But there's this other kind of peace which leads from the peace of God that I'd like to talk to you about next, this peace within. 2020 has been an extremely stressful and anxiety-producing year for so many of us. This pandemic, the politics, the economy, the racial tensions, it's been really difficult to find any sustaining and lasting peace this year. Maybe for you it's something else. Maybe it's a lost job or, or in, in another kind of illness or something else has come upon you this year. You name it. We have plenty of options to choose from in 2020 when it comes to how come we can't have peace. In fact, I saw this funny Christmas ornament online the other day. It's, a, it's an ornament that is a dumpster fire with the, uh, the year 2020 on the front. I thought maybe you'd like to pick one of these up for your tree to remember this wonderful year that we're having. But I think that represents so well what for many of us are feeling, that peace seems like a really long way off. It's a nice idea and a good thought for the holidays. It's something we long for. If this is where you are today, I just want to point out something here about the Christmas story that may be very encouraging, and it's this. That is where Jesus shows up into the dumpster fire. This is where the Christ child is born, in the middle of what was Israel's darkest season of Roman oppression. After waiting centuries and centuries waiting and wondering, where is God in all of this? In the midst of their world, which was turned upside down, especially for this young Jewish couple who found themselves at the center of these cosmic events, while at the same time trying to navigate normal life and the realities of you know, paying their dues and traveling by foot and obviously being counted by the government, they are having to experience childbirth in that setting away from home, away from the support of their family and other women and midwives who usually would be present for that painful process for women. Those of you who, who are parents this year who've given birth in the year 2020, then you know what it's like to uh, have a baby in a stressful environment, don't you? All the visiting restrictions this year that have been upon you, only one parent can visit at a time, introducing your kids to their grandkids over Zoom for the first time. This is a, a really chaotic year to have a baby. That's not unlike the chaos that we find Mary and Joseph experiencing here in the Luke chapter 2 story. Here they are giving birth to their first son, not just their first son, but God's son. In these circumstances, this is where Emmanuel, God with us, shows up. Right in the midst of their anxiety, right in our pain, right in our fears, right in our confusion, in our grief, in our loss, in our uncertainty, even in the darkness, even in the year 2020. That's good news. Oh, that's good for you to say, Pastor Dave. Sounds nice. You don't know how much it hurts. Yeah, I don't know every hardship you're experiencing today and all you've gone through. But the Scripture says God does. He is here bringing his peace to calm our hearts, peace that at times defies circumstances. Yes, in the face of all your feeling and all that you have gone through, when God's peace doesn't make any sense, it is real. It is healing. It is available in a kind of a sacred stillness. 
One of the most common ways I lose my peace within is when I get a curveball thrown at me. Something unplanned, something unpredictable happens, and all of a sudden I'm like losing my bearings and I lose my sense of being in control. As a result, I oftentimes will lose my peace within. But on my better days, I realize that the Bible gives us a surprising resource for those moments, right? In that I can hold my plans loosely and have unpredictability and uncertainty around me, and I can actually still experience this peace within at the same time. See, the Scripture teaches me that what I long for is not this magical place where all the circumstances in life are working out just as I had hoped and planned for. Instead, the peace that I long for is a person. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah said this would be the case. Take a look. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, the Hebrew there means even from eternity, and he will be our peace. He will be our peace. Isn't that amazing? Because if peace is a person, not a set of circumstances, then peace cannot be stolen away from you as long as he promises to be with you, which he does. You see, If you lose your peace because of unpredictable circumstances, that's actually a good indication that you had a counterfeit peace, that you had a peace that actually wasn't dependent upon the theology of God here. That kind of peace is precarious and it's always short-lived. My encouragement, brothers and sisters, is to, to pursue this kind of genuine and lasting peace that is offered by our God who will never leave you. St. Augustine said it this way, God alone is the place of peace that cannot be disturbed. And when you know him and you have him, you can experience his peace within. I love the way author Anne Voskamp says it. She says, peace isn't a place to arrive at, but a person to abide in. Peace isn't a place to arrive at, but a person to abide in. Christ provides that kind of peace. And when we have peace with God, and when we have this peace within, then we can move on to the third kind of peace that he offers us, peace with others. I think we've seen in our story here that peace is a priority to our God. I mean, what more could God say to indicate how high a priority he places on peace? He sent his most exalted ambassador to make peace on earth. Therefore, by extension, God does not want us to treat estrangement from him or others as insignificant. He expects us to make more than a token effort to make peace with others. Jesus teaches us never to delay going to somebody who has something against us. His priority for peace is so high that he even commands us to seek reconciliation prior to coming to worship. Recall the words of Matthew chapter 5. He said, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, stop. Leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. Here God commands us not to even approach him unless we've made every reasonable effort to seek peace with those Around us. Now, I realize reconciliation takes two parties, and there's a great deal of understanding there, and I'm not being simplistic here. It's a two way street. God is saying, make sure your side of the street is clean. Why? 
Because this is the natural outworking of being a follower of the Prince of Peace. He's brought our hearts near. So as a challenge, I would invite you to think of somebody in your life with whom you do not currently have peace and need to pursue for peace. And perhaps this, year, this week you might commit them to prayer and seek God's wisdom to take steps toward peace with that person. I know that's difficult. That's where the rubber hits the road right there. It's difficult for everyone in our culture right now, isn't it? Barely anybody knows how to pursue peace. Barely anybody even knows how to have a civil discourse in our culture anymore. We're living in this season of, I think, unprecedented polarization, but brothers and sisters, as followers of the Prince of Peace, this is our time to shine. I love the way author Ken Sandy says it in his excellent book, The Peacemaker. He says this, take hold of the liberating promises of the gospel. Trust that Jesus has forgiven you of your sins and confess them freely. Believe that he's using the pressures of conflict to help you grow and cooperate with him. Depend on his assurance that he's always watching over you. And stop fearing what others might do to you. Know that he delights to display his sanctifying power in your life and attempt to do things that you could never accomplish in your own strength. Like what? Such as forgiving someone who's hurt you deeply. You know, recently the Arbinger Institute put out this amazing book called The Anatomy of Peace. And in that book, they said, if you're ever going to get to the heart of conflict, if you're going to ever get to the heart of the problem with your lack of peace, they said, we're going to have to all consider a surprising suggestion. What is that suggestion? The suggestion is we actually like our lack of peace. We actually enjoy our lack of peace. We actually like the arguments. We actually like proving ourselves to be right. It's like a drug. Like, man, I'm right. Check me out. I'm right. In that book, there's, the author describes a conversation he has with a very high-ranking Israeli political official. I will not name the name. Uh, but that person said this. You have to understand. I'll put it on the screen for you. You have to understand. We and our enemies are perfect for each other. Each of us gives the other reason never to have to change. Friends, are you beginning to see that if we're ever going to get to the heart of conflict, we have to start looking inside? And then, and only then, can we begin to see people as they really are, as made in God's image, as those who count like we count, and as God's dearly beloved children, even though we may disagree, we can still treat them with love and respect. Let me just give you a practical example this morning. Let's say you have a disagreement with somebody that you know about politics. I know, random example. Probably doesn't apply to anybody here. But if you find yourself in that very unusual situation, the chances are strong that you're, you're, you're convinced, both of you are convinced deep down in your bones that you are right. Both of you are battling for truth. Both of you are battling for justice. But if you're ever going to find peace, then someone or both of you are going to have to choose to preserve the relationship as more important than winning the argument. A friend of mine who works in HR says, says it this way as he mediates stuff at work. He says, somebody has to be the adult here. Like somebody has to break the staring contest. Like somebody has to take the high road. And what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is as followers of the Prince of Peace, let that someone be you. Just say, listen, this is a legitimate discussion. We have a legitimate disagreement. You raise some great concerns. But whether or not we agree here, I want you to know that I value our relationship 
greatly, and I want to affirm that right now, I don't want that to ever be in jeopardy because of our disagreement politically. Are you willing to take that path and give up your desire to be right to preserve the relationship? Even Thomas Jefferson once said, quote, I never considered a difference in politics or religion a cause for withdrawing from a friend, unquote. We need that wisdom today. I mean, you know, I have a friend with whom I, I disagree politically. He's a godly man and a Christian, but we do not see eye to eye on almost every single issue. He looks at it one way, I look at it a completely different way. But there's no doubt in my mind that this is a godly Christian brother. Please do not burn a relational bridge because of a political view. You can love each other unconditionally even when you disagree politically. Which brings me back to this word again. Now, evangelical. I identify with that word. That's like my people. These are, this is my camp of people who believe the Bible to be the word of God, who share the good news about Jesus. This is like, yeah, that term is supposed to represent a spiritual movement of people sharing the gospel of Jesus with the world. And that's exactly why I get a little nervous and concerned when the world out there sees us as a voting block. Because there's this misunderstanding that starts to develop. That people think, those outside the church begin to think oh, all they're really interested in is power. And of course, that's not actually true. But the other problem with this is, and I'll quote Andy Stanley here, is it sets the church up to be a tool of politicians rather than the conscience of the nation. Well, that's not good. When we allow someone else's agenda to erode our primary commitment to God and his gospel, then we've gotten into trouble. Now, I have some very strong convictions on, on certain issues, and, and we talk about those from time to time, but we also have to acknowledge that there are evangelicals who do see things differently when it comes to politics, right? Neither political party completely represents the ethics of the Christian faith, right? And even when Christians agree on the issues, sometimes there's a disagreement in terms of what's the most effective strategy in our culture to carry out those values in the public square. And we have to recognize those differences. I would argue that if, if you're being true to Jesus, then you're going to disagree with both parties in some way, shape, or form. But if you're in lockstep with one party, you might be being more discipled by cable news than you are by the scriptures. Carl Truman wrote an excellent book about this called Republocrat, and he says this, politics has become something of a joke, but not a funny one. Soundbite and knee-jerk have replaced reasoned debate, and the church appears to wear a one-size-fits-all political jacket. Isn't it time to think a little deeper? You see, at either extreme, I think you'd have to acknowledge there are issues. If you go to the extreme right or if you go to the extreme left, you're going to get a lot of Twitter followers there. You're going to get a lot of likes on social media there. Maybe you'll sell a lot of books there. But you're not really going to solve a lot of problems there. And you're not really going to be able to love people well there. And you're definitely not going to find Jesus there. The forces of polarization are powerful right now in our society, and I'm just begging you not to let the enemy divide us. 
The reason is because the church is about something much bigger than politics. We are about the gospel, and we need to work really hard to keep the unity in the spirit through the bond of peace. That is not easy. My good friend Craig, a pastor in Dallas, says it takes no special gift to split a church. Anybody can do that. The same thing could apply to like a family. It takes no special gift to split a family. It takes no special skill to split a relationship. However, it takes an unbelievable amount of energy, maturity, wisdom, faith, compassion, humility, deference, and leadership to keep a church unified. Unity takes maturity. It's a reflection of Christ. I'm not saying you shouldn't be involved politically. You should. Please, vote. Take a stand. I know I do. Pray for our country. But there is something far more important than our political differences here. When Paul hears about the divided church of Corinth, remember what he says? His first question is, is Christ divided? Our divisions take on this added seriousness because our conflict actually tars the one whose image we bear. This is why Christ prays in John 17, I pray that they might be one. And so the gospel is large enough to support different political views. Probably the guy with the hardest pastoring job in this country is Mark Dever. His church is in Washington, D.C. You can imagine as he looks out every Sunday, who's sitting there? He recently said this very insightful statement. He said, if through your sincere about sincere concern about voter fraud or identity politics or voter suppression or systematic racism, you speak in an ultimate or exaggerated ways about these things so that you threaten the unity of the body, you at some point become my enemy. He goes on to say, because I must defend the sheep for whom Christ has died that are here. He says, I accept a lack of unanimity in our culture and even in our church as part of the freedom and responsibility that we have in a democracy. But caring about the positions that people hold more than about the people who hold them is unchristian and harmful. And let me just also say this, friends. God may actually leave people around you in your life who disagree with you politically on purpose, so that you might better learn to love. And one day when you stand before the King of Kings in glory, you might find that to be far more important and significant than you currently realize it is today. Did I mention that if you mistreat one of my kids, then that's the fastest way to get my attention? Did I also mention that the reverse is true, that the best way to get on my good side and have peace with me is if you do something kind to one of my children in love? That brings me back to this word as we close, evangelical. If you're a Christian, Christmas is the real thing for you. You follow this Prince of Peace. If you have faith in Christ, if you've been washed by his blood, you have a special responsibility, a special ministry. If you belong to Christ, if you're a believer, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, you are given the ministry of reconciliation. That is a wonderful 
but fearful responsibility that we have. We are ambassadors, Paul says, in a foreign land, and our responsibility is to speak for who? For the one who sent us, to represent him as citizens of heaven. And what is our responsibility? It is a ministry of reconciliation. We are to be about reconciling people to God and to others. That means you are called and qualified to live in a land that is foreign to you. And here's the question, who are you speaking for? Who are you representing? Brothers and sisters, let's remember that when we speak, we speak for him. May God empower us to live as his ambassadors in this ministry of reconciliation in the midst of our divided world. As followers of the Prince of Peace 2,000 years ago, he made an amazing promise. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, which means recognized as or seen to be, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for preserving this text and this message of peace to us as it is so convicting. We're reminded of the words of St. Francis of Assisi who said, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Oh God, may you give us the strength to carry out this high calling of this ministry of reconciliation today. We pray that as we look upon the humility of Christ, we would see the obvious implications. For if Christ is humble, the obvious implication is that I ought to be humble too. If we serve a God who gave up his rights, then that should imply that I must give up my rights. If we believe that we have a God who looks out first for the interest of others, then that implies that we too must first look out for the interest of others as well. Lord, help us to follow you. Help us to represent you well. We pray, God, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Can we stand?